Well, so as she said, my name is Julie Crocker. I'm a licensed professional counselor associate in the state of Texas and opened my own private practice, Magnolia Creek Counseling, just a few months ago, actually. Um, I work with children, teenagers, and parents. Previous to that, I have about 26 years in education and ministry, 19 years as a children's minister at about five different churches. And then before that, I was in college administration, actually right down the road, kind of from where we are in Northwest Arkansas. I did my graduate, some of my graduate work at the University of Arkansas and worked there and also worked at Northwest Arkansas Community College. I'm a fan of Tulsa, you need to know. When we lived in Arkansas, there were not a lot of places to shop. And so my husband would take me to Tulsa and we would do some our shopping here. Right, We had like one mall in Northwest Arkansas at the time. So I love Tulsa, and everybody has been gracious since I've been here, and I want to say thank you so much. I'm very passionate about this conversation of anxiety because I want to be honest with you all today. It has impacted my life personally and impacted my family's life in a way that has caused me to be passionate and engage in the conversation in a way that brings hope to the conversation. Oftentimes when we talk about anxiety, it's isolating, it's lonely, and it can feel hopeless. And today, we're going to talk about hope. Before we, get a, before we do that, we're going to talk about some statistics and some education as well that are hard to think that there might be hope in this. But I promise you, by the time we wrap up, there's going to be hope. Anytime that I present this content, I always share with the crowd. I actually get very nervous speaking in public, right? And for 20 six years professionally, I've always had jobs where, guess what, I've had to speak in public. But um, because I get nervous, actually my neck normally gets red. That's the, the physical symptom that my body manifests when I get anxious and nervous. And so for 26 years, I have worn a scarf around my neck so that nobody would know that I was nervous. But I thought, gosh, that's part of the problem when we talk about anxiety is we're walking around covering it up so that nobody else sees it. And that's isolating and lonely. So today, I want to say I'm going to do something that's out of my comfort zone, right? I'm sharing with you all on a topic that I'm very passionate about, that I'm very personal about. But it's worth it to push through the anxiousness because you guys are worth it and your children are worth it. And that's why I'm passionate about sharing it today. Okay, so real quickly, um, I have researched anxiety at least over a decade, right? Like I said, it's impacted my life and my children's life, my family. And so um, this is a culmination of a lot of that research as well as personal things I see in private practice, things that I've seen in ministry. And so it all comes together today. So raise your hands real quickly if you're here as a parent or a grandparent. Okay, most of you guys. What about raise your hand if you're here as like a Sunday school leader, like you work with children and teenagers, so primarily, okay, we got a couple, right? And maybe you serve two different areas. Maybe you're like, I'm also a parent. I'm also a volunteer leader. Um, what about teachers in our community? Do we have teachers? Got it. Okay, um, that helps me. And then real quickly, ages. Who has infants and toddlers? Okay, got it. Who has preschoolers? Okay, who has elementary age children? Majority of you guys. Who has middle schoolers? Also, okay. Um, and who has high schoolers? Got it. We have a wide range. I, wanna, I always wanna be sure the content is appropriate and meets you y'all's needs. Um, let's see if I've got the trick to the clicker. Maybe I don't. It's on. Okay, we're switching to this right here. 
There we go. I like to share with everybody, this is my family. We are from the Woodlands, Texas. My husband is entering into his 22nd year in education. He's a high school teacher, football coach, and golf coach. And then we have two kids. Our son, Justin, is a senior in high school, and our daughter is a freshman in high school. So as you can tell, the conversation of anxiety and busyness, right, a little bit of stress, happens in our house. I wish that they were here today because they're really fun um, to talk with, and so I miss that they're not here with me. And so, um, let's see here. Hold on. Okay. Um, got it. So, anxiety defined. I love this definition of anxiety. And this is from Sissy Goff. Is anybody familiar with the writings of Sissy Goff? She is a counselor in um, Nashville, Tennessee at Daystar Counseling. And I think she has the best definition of anxiety. And a lot of this um, talk tonight is actually based on her content. But Sissy Goff explains that anxiety is um, an overestimation of the threat and an underestimation of ourselves. And tonight, what I said that there's going to be hope in this conversation. We're going to talk about why there's an overestimation of the threat and why there's an underestimation of ourselves and what we can do to flip the script so that we understand the threat doesn't have to be that scary. And I actually have power to overcome the scary thing, right, the anxiety that I have inside of me. Um, but here's the thing that I said, like, this isn't going to be the fun stuff, right? This isn't the thing with hope. So we believe now that about one in three kids um, are dealing with anxiety. I'll be honest, I really struggled with this number because it sounds so high. Um, but we know about 10 years ago, the number was about one in eight. And then as we moved into the pandemic, it was about one in four. And you'll hear me say that anything that you moved into the pandemic with, it only escalated, Right? So if you moved in with good things, you were like, hey, we're good. If you moved in with hard things, hey, it was hard, right? Anything you moved into the pandemic with, you carried with you. And so now it looks like we're emerging with um, our children being anxious with about a one in three ratio. Like I said, I really struggled with that number. It sounds high. So I went to our school district. Um, we have the fifth largest school district in the state of Texas, and I talked to their mental health team. And they said, absolutely. The number one thing that counselor surveys came back at the end of the year is that kids are manifesting anxiety in ways they had never seen before. Um, they also said, so then I started talking to teachers. I know a lot of teachers, and they said, absolutely, we have seen kids with anxiety. I'm super connected with camps because of my background in ministry. Camps all over the state of Texas. This summer, they said they have seen kids with anxiety and anger like they had never seen before. And these are longtime camp people, right? Kid, people who know kids. And then in our children's hospitals in our community, we're seeing kids um, in increased rates being admitted to the ER for panic um, and anxiety disorders, um, depression and the things that go along with those things. Anxiety and depression actually hang out together. In the therapy world, we could say that they're comorbidity, like they, they're friends, they're buddies. And we know that anxiety, if left untreated, often moves to depression. So I promise there's gonna be hope at the end of this. I promise you, okay? And then uh, finally, we had some friends in from England a couple of weeks ago, and this conversation always comes up if you're raising kids, and people know I'm so passionate about kids and mental health and wellness, and our friends ask the question, how are kids in America dealing with um, stress and anxiety? And I said, it's, it's an overwhelming amount of people that are children that are struggling with anxiety, and they said, we're seeing the same thing in England. I thought, wow, that's so interesting, right? It, it almost feels like maybe another global pandemic in some ways. I hate to make it that big, but that was eye-opening to me. So th the number one question that I get all the time 
is what's causing this anxiety? It's the number one question. The air conditioning has been out in my office the last few weeks, and I've had like a number of different HVAC teams in, right? And every single team that comes in is like, my, so my office is a playroom. That's, that's therapy. I do play therapy. I do equine therapy, but my office is a playroom. And every team that comes in is like, what's going on with kids and anxiety? And I say, well, let's talk about it. So there are some causes to anxiety that we know are natural things for our kids. Um, the first thing is trauma. Right, that's no shock or surprise. And what we're going to talk about at the end of this time is a treatment opportunity for you to engage with your kids. And trauma doesn't fall in this line. We're talking about generalized anxiety today. Trauma is a whole different ball game, you guys. But, but nonetheless, it plays into anxiety. Genetics. Oftentimes, children that worry have parents that worry. Not all the time, but oftentimes that's a predictor. Personality, and this is normally where I see parents start to turn to each other. If you have that type A, high performing, get it done, wow, oh my goodness, superstar, amazing athlete, right? Um, great on the football field, great on the basketball court, great academically. Oftentimes those kids have anxiety. And in the education system, we, we often reward it, right? We're like, man, that kid's a get-it-done kid. That's the kid I can go to with something, right? They're not the ones causing trouble in my class. They're the ones turning in the assignment on time. Not even on time, maybe like three days in advance to be sure it's done right, right? So oftentimes personality plays into that. Oftentimes these types of personalities maybe have trouble with like being flexible. If anybody has a kid that you have to be somewhere 15 minutes on time, or ahead of time just to be sure that they have control of the situation, they know what the layout is, right? That's some anxiety going on, right? They also maybe can be global thinkers, like they have one really hard thing that happened in their day, maybe not even as a hard thing, it was just a tough thing, and they're like, mom, dad, today was the worst day ever. Have you ever had that? You picked a kid up, it was the worst day ever. Well, the truth is maybe they had had many, many things in their day go right, but they think globally, right, and that one bad day, or that one bad thing in the day gets, is the one that gets the attention, right, and they're like, man, it was rough. Or maybe they're catastrophic, like maybe they're that, occasionally, I wouldn't say this anybody in here, occasionally sometimes we have children that are prone to a little bit of drama, right? Occasionally. And so you have that kid that's like, oh my goodness, can you believe this happened and that happened? So some of these things are personality-based kind of things that are anxiety-driven um, things. And then, of course, life circumstances, you guys. Death of a family member. These are things that make sense to us, right? Um, divorce of a family member. A move. Those things cause anxiety for us as well, right? And then what we're going to focus on really quickly is environment and development, so you guys, we're parenting in a post-9-11 world. That's what the research is saying. And when I say we, like me, I'm parenting alongside you guys. So all of this content, I want you to know it is not spoken down to you. I'm learning alongside you at the same time. But research says like post-9-11 is significant. So a post-9-11 world, a lot of anxiety came in. 1999, we had Columbine, right? These things began to enter into our world. I don't know about y'all. Growing up, I was afraid of the Russians, right, the Cold War. This is what I was afraid of. I wasn't afraid of what was gonna happen in my community or my world, but it's a post 9-11 world. 
We also have a 24-7 news cycle. Again, I'm telling my age, but I remember when TV went off, right? It ended at the end of the day, the national anthem played, and then those vertical lines showed up, and you heard a beep, and it didn't come back until 6 o'clock in the morning. Right now, we have phones that are with us all the time. My Apple News bings one time a day, and it tells me something's going on. And so it's a 24-7 news cycle, tremendously anxiety-producing, not just for our children, but for us. And then technology and social media. Probably hands down, I hesitate to say it, but I believe it's probably the greatest cause of our children's anxiety. I had a young woman in my office in her late teens, and she said something that really, really gripped me. She said, here's the deal. As parents, you guys were figuring out technology as we were born. And she wasn't being condescending. She was being honest, right? She's a beautiful heart, such a smart young lady. She said, so because y'all were figuring it out, and you didn't know what to do, we were left to figure it out, and we knew too much too soon. We were exposed to too many things we should not have been exposed to. And my friends and I, we say that we won't give our kids smartphones when we have kids. What? Like, that shocked me. I have kids in my own house all the time. So you can imagine now, the number one question, anytime a teenager comes in my house, I say, will you give your kids cell phones? Will you give them smartphones? Most of the kids say no. So I've gone a step further, and I started asking kids, would you be willing to give your smartphone up? And they say, you know what? I know I really need to, but it would be really hard to. It would be really hard to, but I know I need to. It just gripped me in a way that I felt like this generation has kind of lost their childhood, their opportunity at childhood. There is a quote, and I don't remember who said it. I don't remember where I heard it. But childhood should be a series of developmentally appropriate secrets revealed at the developmentally appropriate time for an individual to know and understand their world around them. And yet we have kids walking around with information that probably not even just, not even developmentally appropriate, just not appropriate at all, period, right? That breaks my heart for them. It breaks my heart for them. So technology is a significant thing. And then the pandemic, like I said, anything you went into the pandemic with, you came out of the pandemic with, it was only escalated. So one in four went into the pandemic with anxiety, one in three now have anxiety. My older kids say like, they felt like they missed out on some things. It was a little bit of a bummer, is what they say. You know, but my younger kids, they really struggled with the pandemic. I have a little guy who the pandemic hit when he was in kindergarten. And he said to me, you know what happened? Corona shut my kindergartens down. I didn't get to say goodbye to my friends at all. And when we came back to school, my parents moved me to a different kindergarten. And all my other friends, they moved on to first grade, but my parents had me repeat kindergarten. Dude, that's a lot of loss for a six-year-old to process, right? And so the parents brought him because they were worried. He was washing his hands a lot. And they said, maybe we've got some OCD going on. Well, as summer hit, the, the hand washing subsided. And truly, that kid was just trying to be sure he didn't have to redo anything again because he had had a lot of loss. I think our preschoolers and our early elementary age kids missed some developmentally appropriate blocks of knowledge and information, not just academically but socially, that we're seeing as part of the pandemic and the anxiety as well. And then I want to talk about this developmental component as well. So what's interesting about anxiety is it actually attaches to things that are developmentally appropriate fears. 
right? And so, um, because they're naturally developmentally appropriate fears, what can happen is what you want to allow a child to do in those moments is to give them time and experience to build the trust that they need to move through the developmentally appropriate fear, right? Time and experience to build the trust. So for our little guys, our toddlers, right, they're going through, in infants, they're going through stranger danger, separation anxiety. That's scary. Well, here's the deal. With time and experience, they'll often move past that developmentally appropriate fear. Preschoolers, their developmentally appropriate fear is they're trying to figure out if what in the world is real and what's not, right? So they're afraid of, I love preschoolers. I love preschoolers. They're afraid of monsters. They're afraid of ghosts. They're afraid of the dark. One of my kids was afraid of the tooth fairy. She was like, some, some fairy's going to come in and grab a tooth and take money from my pillow? No, while I'm asleep? That sounds horrible. We can, do, we can put the tooth on the dining room table, but nobody's coming in my room to pay me for a tooth. That's crazy, right? They're trying to figure out what's real and what's not real. So they also, um, they're afraid of things like snake, spiders. I'm still afraid of snakes and spiders, by the way, right? Didn't move past that developmental fear. But things like this occur when you have experience and trust, experience and time, you build the trust to move through the developmentally appropriate fear. One of the things that I think when you tie to technology and these little guys, I'm just going to say, man, how awesome technology is that we can have Amazon and bring things to our house. How awesome is it that we can order groceries and just pull up to the curb and our kids don't have to go in? I'm telling you what, I, as a parent, I would have jumped on that bandwagon in a second. But I see that kids and these developmental fears, they really need to be out figuring their world out around them. It's phenomenal. In a pinch, do it. Order Amazon. Get curbside. But don't neglect the opportunity for your kid to be out in the world, outside of their home, even outside of church, outside of their school. Get them into settings where people, where they're around people and they start to read faces and nonverbal cues. All those things are important for these developmental fears. And then we move into these elementary years. And you guys, whew, this is where it starts to hit right? These elementary guys start to feel the pressure. Kids are always evaluating themselves on, on a self-evaluation level in these four areas. Physically, emotionally, academically, and socially. And in elementary, they're actually figuring those things out kind of individually on their own. They're really trying to please their teacher or their leader or their parent, but they're trying to figure these things out um, developmentally. Here's the fear for elementary age. And you'll see why this is important when we talk about anxiety in elementary age kids. They're realizing the world around them isn't safe. And there's nothing that we can really do to guarantee that their world is safe, right? I mean, we can take measures, we can do steps, we can be engaged in the conversation, but it's really hard. They're aware that the world isn't safe. So oftentimes in elementary school, you'll see kids manifest anxiety like, um, do we have a, is the house alarm on? Let's double check that house alarm. I'm gonna go back and check it again. I need to be sure my house is safe. Um, are we sure nobody's in the house? Because I wanna be sure my house is safe. How can I be sure mom and dad are safe when they're away from me? Because I'm figuring out the world around them isn't safe, right? And then you have that 24 seven news cycle. So we have to be very careful about the content that's in our homes. Turn off the TVs, turn off the TVs. Kids have a way of asking questions that let us know that's exactly what they need to know, right? We don't have to deliver too much information, 
Just answer the questions along the way. And here's the deal. If a kid asks you a question, you think, I am not ready to answer that question. Ooh, I got to think about it. Tell your kid, hey, you know what? That's an awesome question. I'm going to do some research because I've got to really figure out how to answer it the right way. And you know what? Elementary especially, they're like, that's fine. They'll move on to the next thing. But keep it, in your, keep it in your mind, file it away, call a friend. How did you handle this? A friend with an older kid, right? What's the best way to handle this? And um, work through those things. And then we have middle school. Raise your hand again if you have middle schoolers. Right. Whew. So our voice stops mattering as much and peers start jumping in. Middle school is a natural time, preteen to middle, right, where self-esteem decreases naturally. And so their developmental fear is, will my friends like me? Will I matter? And so um, I always recommend, like, thinking outside of the box, finding things where kids are successful outside of the box. Um, if they aren't that traditional athlete or academician or super social kid, like, find something that they thrive and succeed in so that they can feel successful. Um, and the other part of this, of course, it's not going to surprise you, social media. Ooh. And the conversation, can you see how social media would activate anxiety for a middle schooler who's trying to figure out, do my friends like me or not? And so then you have things like Snapchat. And who, I always like to raise your hands, parents, if you have Snapchat. Okay, so straight up, if your kids have Snapchat, download Snapchat and start a family Snapchat. Like if you're going to let your kids have Snapchat, engage with them in the social media world, right? And so I always recommend that. But the, so I was always worried about content. There's a for you page on the social, same with Instagram, right? And the content you guys was like mind, mind boggling. But um, I'm actually have a bigger concern now. And it's things like with Snapchat, you have snap streaks where these kids snap each other every single day. And like, it's important, right? Like you say, like, I have a snap streak with my bestie and it's gone for 100 days. But they maybe have like 15, 20, 30 snap streaks that they're maintaining. Number one, that's a ton of time. But the second biggest concern, that, well, it's probably the biggest concern, not the second, is that when they're mad at each other and they're in a snap streak with somebody, so the snap streak, you take a picture of your face or your forehead, you know, whatever. But if you're in a snap streak and you're mad at somebody, you take a picture of the ceiling or the wall. And that's how they know they're mad at each other. And I'm like, so you, you have, you're in a conflict with them? And oftentimes in my office, they're like, yeah, but I don't really know why. You're having conflict and you can't engage in the conversation in a healthy way? Yeah, no, I don't. And I, so I say, well, why don't you just stop snap streaking them? And they're like, oh, that could be so way worse. Are you kidding me? No. Wow. How do you navigate conflict in a healthy way? If you're not even going to say to each other that you're mad, like, and they'll say, I see them in person. We talk, but we don't talk about why we're mad at each other. Ooh. Anxiety producing for a kid in middle school who's trying to figure out in my social world, do I matter? And then, of course, parenting too, you guys. I don't know, middle school, high school, if your kids can text you, right? Like if they fail the test, they're like, ooh, I think I failed the test. Immediately, they have the opportunity for us to rescue them, right? I have a friend whose child texted the first day of school and they said, I, had a, I have a migraine. They were in the bathroom, I have a migraine. Well, this particular kid has migraines, right? So the mom's like, okay, I'm gonna go get you. Makes sense, right? I know you medically have a migraine. The second day, the kid texted and said, I'm having a panic attack. And mom's like, whoa, not playing this game today, right? anxiety manifested itself. We're available all the time to them because of, it, because of technology. 
And then finally, high school, you guys. In high school, their number one fear is like love interest. Like, am I worthy of love? And their future. And again, technology ties into this conversation in a way that can be really hard. We know that teenagers send inappropriate pictures to one another, right? What they did out of thinking that they were in love or in a trusting relationship can turn. It can be shared with other people. It can be held over their head to say, like, don't break up with me or else I'm going to share this picture with everybody. (sighs) Tremendously anxiety-producing. That's happening in our community and in our schools. Um, And then finally, like, with the future. I have a dear friend whose child a few years ago decided not to go to school, not to go to college. Um, And she came to her mom and said, I'm so sorry you don't have anything to put on social media about me going to college. And the mom's like, dude, I don't care. You're going to figure it out. But there's a tremendous amount of pressure to figure out the future. And social media escalates those things. So... So here's how anxiety works. Has anybody ever seen this cycle of anxiety? Okay. So you have the triggering event, right? My triggering event, I said I struggle sometimes to talk in public, right? So my triggering event maybe is like, ooh, when this thing started being posted on social media, right? I saw it shared a few times and I thought, oh, this is really gonna happen. Oh my goodness, right? Then I have a worried thought. What if people in the audience are smarter than me or better at me than this? Who I don't know, right? And then my amygdala gets activated. And we're going to talk about the amygdala in a second. It's the part of the brain that keeps data and information. It's like the, the fire sensor. It's your fire alarm going off in your brain. You have this physical response, which is like upset stomach. Everything activates. You have more worried thought, and then the, it intensifies physically. So that's how worry works, right? And so you can see where if it attaches developmentally, it makes sense, Right? Okay, so here's, here's the thing, the brain, I love to talk about the brain. The brain develops from the back to the front. Your front is the prefrontal cortex. This is like your executive reasoning. It's your logic. It's the ability to socialize with one another and pick things up. We now know that the prefrontal cortex is not fully developed until age 25, right? Which kind of rocks my world because I think we give kids a car keys at age 16. We say you're going to be judged in a court of law by age 18 as an adult. And this isn't fully developed. And then at 21, we're going to let you drink. Wow. And this executive functioning is not fully developed yet. That's crazy to me. But that's what happens. So when you're in a moment of stress, your prefrontal cortex, all the blood leaves it. It's saying, gosh, I have a giant test today, and I know I've studied, but I'm a super high-performing student, and I have so much writing on this. And so all the blood flow leaves the prefrontal cortex, and it goes back to the amygdala, and the amygdala is the fire alarm. And here's the deal. It doesn't know if if you're buying a lie or not. It just knows they've got a problem. And so they want to retreat. Anxiety craves comfort and continuity. So it's like, whew, I'm not doing this today. This is hard, right? And so that's what happens when the brain gets triggered. Now, when I tell my teenagers this story, like, you know, how the brain works in my office, they're like, yeah, I I Googled it. Or um, I saw a TikTok about that. Absolutely. Got it, right? And I say, well, that's information. It's not knowledge. 
you just saw somebody give you information. We're going to talk about the knowledge about it and what you can do about it. I had a kindergartner in my office, and I was explaining this. With kinder- little ones, I say it's thinking gel, not blood, because sometimes they can be like, blood, so gross, right? But I say it's thinking gel, right? And I say all your th- when you get stressed out, all your thinking gel leaves here, and this is like the super smart part of your brain, and it goes back to the amygdala, which is the part that's like, help, get me out of here, I'm so scared. And this kindergartner's like, I know exactly what you mean. This is exactly what happens when I play video games and I get mad. And I was like, yes, it is, absolutely. And she said, I know I'm supposed to stop. I know I'm supposed to ask my mom questions. I know that everybody is there to help me. I know that I just need to take a break, but I can't. I get so mad that I can't figure it out. And I was like, dude, that's exactly right. That's what stress and anxiety does to our brain. So logic is lost. The fire brain, the fire alarm takes over, and here's the deal. If anybody has ever tried to work with a child or an adult in full dysregulation, we know it doesn't work, right? You can say a million things. It wouldn't matter. Um, It takes about 20 to 30 minutes to bring a child down into regulation. So that's what happens. Here's the physical responses, right? You have the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight's activated, and it wants to move away. And here's what happens. Fear wins, adrenaline picks up, your your blood flow to the frontal cortex is gone, and survival is the goal. And so here's the physical symptoms of anxiety. Um, If your kid says like, oh, I've got a stomach ache, they really have a stomach ache, right? Like anxiety has kicked in, right? Um, Blood flow to your fingertips moves away. If you have asthma, it can be exaggerated. Headaches are normal with physical anxiety. Um, Your GI tract, like I said. And um, your appetite can be messed with heart rate increases. Like I said, for me, um, my neck turns red when I get really, really nervous. There's always some part of physical manifestation when we have anxiety um, that, that kicks in. All right. So those are some of the causes of anxiety and some of the science behind it. I think it's important that parents know these things because I think, I hope, it gives us the opportunity to engage with our children with empathy. And here's the thing, if, even if you have like, it helps us with our spouses, it helps us with our aging parents, it helps us with, with relationships across the board. It's not just kids, right? We can see how anxiety can kick in and enter the conversation with us as adults, even when our brains are fully developed. Um, so here's, here's what we're gonna talk about, and this is the remedy. And guys, I have so much content, but we're gonna go quickly. There's power in connection. When we connect to one another, we have the opportunity to break free from the anxiety. When we're sitting alone in our place, our rooms, and we're anxious, if our kids are sitting alone in isolation, anxiety loves that, right? It loves to sit there. It loves to grow. It loves to have a relationship with our kids. We have to move them out into the conversation for them to be comfortable. I love this quote by Melissa Trevathan. She's also part of the team that Sissy Goff is on. It's all about building trust. Trust is the, anxiety, is the antidote for anxiety. And so you remember what I talked about with those developmental fears. Time and experience builds trust to move through the thing that's scary. Time and experience builds trust. So we don't want to accommodate 
anxiety and say, you don't have to go to school today because it's really scary. You can stay home, right? You also don't want to eliminate it or try to say it doesn't matter. Like, are you kidding? Why would you be anxious? I've said this before. So this is, why would you be anxious about a math test? You've studied. Your teacher says you're fine. You're going to be fine. I don't know why this is a problem. And to the kid, they're like, I don't really know why this is a problem either, but it is, right? And then there's in some shame because they're like, why do I feel this way? I don't know. So you want to engage in the conversation, um, and you don't want to accommodate, but you don't want to eliminate. And this is often the time that maybe, like, spouses start to look at each other, too, in this conversation because oftentimes we switch roles, right? But one of us maybe wants to accommodate more, so you don't have to go do the hard thing. And the other one's like, go do it. You'll be fine. Push them out the door. Move on, right? But that just is kind of the, the roles that we take. Um, but it's all about trust. And so building trust for us with our kids is living life with them. And here's the deal. If you have a middle schooler, if you have a high schooler, I know they push you away. Live in that world. Find times to engage in your, with your kids outside of tough conversations. Have fun family game nights. Before you get to this point, do it in preschool. Start in preschool, you guys. Our preschool families, our toddlers. Have fun family game nights where you're building connection with one another so your kids know that you can be in a relationship with them and have hard conversations. All right. Here is the seven keys to solving the worry puzzle. I want to leave you guys with some things that you can, content that you can do at home. So like I said, Sissy Goff was a big part of this um, presentation, the first part. The second part is built off of um, a book called Anxious Kids and Anxious Parents by Dr. Reed Wilson and Lynn Lyons. Lynn Lyons has podcasts, website, all kinds of stuff. And truly, the content that I'm getting ready to share with you is her. She's got 30 years as a counselor. It's what I use in practice. It's what I use in my own home. It's what I use to practice to move through um, worry. So here's the deal. We're going to engage in the conversation of anxiety. We're not going to accommodate it. We're not going to eliminate it. We're going to go for it. We're going to engage in the conversation of anxiety. Oftentimes I see parents consumed with content too, right? How can I fix this for you? Here's the deal. There's so many things in life that we can't fix for our children, right? Um, if anxiety wants certainty and comfort, we can't provide those things. I don't know about you, but I haven't really lived a year that hasn't had some discomfort, right? Like, it's a part of life. And so we have to prepare our children for those things that are uncomfortable. But we don't want to address the content too long because we can't solve the content oftentimes. What we can talk about is what we're going to do with the worry. And so that's what this premise is completely. Um, we want to expect worry. The first step is to expect worry, which sounds so counterintuitive. I think sometimes parents say like, well, it's normal to be worried, right? And then a kid's going to be like, this is normal? Are you kidding me? But it actually calms the central nervous system down, right? And so we want to expect it. We normalize it. Um, and then we want to empathize with it. Empathy is the key that unlocks the heart for relationship. Dude. Of course you would be worried about your first day of school. I remember when I was little, I really worried about my first day of school too. Or you know what? I just started a new job, and, and I worried too. Did you know that? Like, it's normal. 
when we have to do something uncomfortable. So expect it. Expect it to feel uncomfortable. My husband always says, get comfortable in the uncomfortable. It's really hard to do, but it's an important skill that we need to learn in life. Pre-COVID, our community was really consumed with resiliency. I don't know if you heard that word. We brought speakers in, and we were like, why aren't our kids resilient, right? I think this is a huge part of it. We wanted to accommodate anxiety, or we wanted to eliminate it. We didn't engage it. We didn't take it on head on, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, when your kid does something that's hard, they go out and do the hard thing. When they get in the car, the next time you see them or whatever, say, dude, how did it go? Nine times out of ten, nine times out of ten, the kid getting in the car realized those fears that they had weren't necessarily even valid, Right? They realized, well, the day was maybe hard. I was at a new school. I didn't necessarily make any friends, but it wasn't horrible, right? We can catastrophize those things in our minds. So ask them for a post-analysis assessment. Tell me the good things of today. Tell me the bad things of today, right? So we're going to expect worry to show up. We're going to say it's normal. We're going to empathize with it. And then when they push through the hard thing, we're going to say, dude, you did it. Tell me about it. Tell me about this experience. Um, our son was a camp counselor this summer at a camp that's very near and dear to me. And he grew up at the camp. And so he was like, I got this. I can't wait to practice being away from home. He's a senior. Practice. My husband and I are like, why are you going to practice being away from us, dude? Like, that's, it turns out to be a really good thing. Because when he got there, he was actually very anxious and very nervous. And the phone calls started and the text messages started. And every time he called, we say, dude, why wouldn't you be nervous? You're taking care of other people's kids. You're on your own. And he was in high, still in high school. He's working with people who are mainly in college. That's pretty anxiety producing. And every time we'd, he'd call or text, we'd say, if anybody can do it, it's you. Right? If anybody can do it, it's you. But we know this is scary. If anybody can do it, it's you. When you call next time, tell us something that's awesome. Tell us something great that happened. So we're going to normalize it. And then we're going to talk to it, which sounds a little crazy. And this is normally where I lose people, right? And they're like, we're going to talk to it. But what you do when you externalize worry and you give a name to it, you can actually um, separate yourself from it, okay? So I work at an equine ranch. I actually have this little mini horse. His name is Tex. He's an equine horse. And one day I was leading him. Um, he was brand new at the ranch, and so we had him on lead, and I was just walking with him. I didn't realize there were deer in the woods in front of us. And so I was actually walking ahead of him, which is something you're not supposed to do as you're leading a horse. You're supposed to walk beside him, right? Build relationship, connection. But I was ahead of him. And the truth is, he was exhibiting signs of fear, like long before we got even close to the deer. And we took one step too many, and he took off. He broke away from me and ran and turned back around and assessed the situation, right? There's a lot of, it's pretty smart, actually, for an animal that doesn't have the brain capacity that we do. Move away from the fear and let's assess it. Granted, it's a part of you, but it doesn't have to be the loudest voice for you, right? Um, so create distance with the worry. We're going to expect it, but then we're going to create distance with it. And so you can name it, worry monster, ooh, 
when that kid starts popping up, like if you have the kid that needs your constant reassurance that everything's going to be okay, if you have the girl that's like, um, is this outfit look okay? How's this outfit looking? I, is it, do the shoes look good? Is everything fine? Right? Constant reassurance, a sign of some anxiety. And to turn back around and go, oh, I see like the worry monster is here. What's going on with that, dude? How do you feel about what you're wearing? I don't have to wear it. How do you feel about it? Are you comfortable in it? Right? So take a step back and recognize it when it pops up. And then get uncomfortable on purpose. Step three, get uncomfortable on purpose. When you're thinking, that's really tough to do. So I have this little guy in practice that has anxiety. And um, this summer he got super uncomfortable on purpose. There were three big things that he did. The first thing was he went down a water slide. He's seven years old. He just had his seventh birthday. So he went down a water slide, and he was so nervous. It was a really big neighborhood water slide. And so the dad went up with him and said, like, you've got this, dude. And he was like, ooh. And he's so funny. He says, when I get nervous, I shake so bad, but I don't think anybody knows. And I was like, okay, good to know, right? So he's like, um, dad said he went up there, and he, like, took a step down, took a step back, but he engaged in it. And he went for it. And he went down over and over and over again. The other thing that is anxiety producing for him was crossing the street on a bicycle. And dad said, we're going to do it. So here's the thing with this. When you're talking about being uncomfortable on purpose, you don't do it like, I'm nervous. You've got to go for it. Because what we want to do is train the brain to say, you've been believing lies, dude. Believe in lies. And so we're going to rework the brain and rework that fire system to be sure that it knows it's a lie. Mm -mm. We're going to retrain that brain. So be uncomfortable on purpose. So the third thing he did was at the end of the summer, and he went to urban air. Do you all have urban air or like jump, jump places, right? And so um, there was a zip line that went over the ceiling. Okay. He came in, and he had pictures, and he's like, I did the zip line today. Tell me about it. And he's like, I was nervous, but dude, I got it. And I was like, high five. Let's go, buddy. Right? Like he engaged in the conversation. So get uncomfortable on purpose. Um, yep. But step into that worry. Have them step into the worry. And with all those things, remember, if they're afraid to get on the school bus, dude. I know, I know you're nervous. We're going to expect worry to show up. Mm -hmm. And then um, when worry shows up, we're going to call it out. Worry, I know what you do. It's no secret. I know how my body works with this. I know that you're telling the amygdala we got a problem here. You engage that conversation. And then you get uncomfortable on purpose. You say, I'm going to step onto that school bus. The fourth step is you breathe, which sounds crazy. But for kids, it resets the central nervous system, and for us, too, to stop and to breathe. Prayer, by the way, stopping to, to pray and breathe at the same time brings a tremendous amount of peace to our spirits. And so to stop and to breathe. For kids, I say, like, there's all kinds of stuff, but you could say, you, you know, you breathe in the flower, and you, you blow out the candle. Breathe in the flower, blow out the candle. Or... Um, breathe in the birthday cake smell, and for boys, bro, blow out the fire-driven breathing dragon, you know. Breathe in and breathe out. We're going to reset the amygdala. So if that kid is nervous to get on the bus, you say, dude, like, you got to. Like, it's required. Like, I need you to get on the bus because I have to get your siblings everywhere, and then I've got to get to work. You're going to have to do it. 
I know it's going to be scary, but you can breathe through it. You've got this, dude, right? And then my favorite thing is um, know what you want. This is powerful for kids. Set a goal. So for preteen and high school kids, knowing what you want is often related to peers. And so um, for camp, we had this, uh, when I was in children's ministry, we had this whole baseball team that went to summer camp every single year, and they were always in a cabin together. But one particular camper on this baseball team was very nervous to go. But here's the deal. He was like a preteen. He didn't want to be left out from his baseball team, right? So we said, like, dude, do you want this? And he was like, yes, but I'm so nervous. I don't like to stay away from home. And I, so we said, understandable, right? It's scary to be away from home. We get it. Worry monster showing up 100%. Is it worth it to you? And he was like, it is. And then we said, so let's set the goal. You've got this. And he made it, right? Because those peers mattered. So my little guy that I said has some fears, right? We talked about he doesn't sleep. He's seven years old, and he doesn't sleep in his bed yet. He wants to sleep in his bed. Dude, he wants it so bad, but um, he's nervous too. So here's what we did. We said, he has homework right now. So his homework is to tell me why he wants to sleep in that bed. Like, what's the goal? He couldn't, he couldn't articulate it. I said, go home with mom, go home with dad, and tell me why you want to sleep in the bed. When you come back, tell me why you want to sleep in your room. His room is like awesome. They just redid it. it it's phenomenal. But he's scared. He's afraid. So, um, engaging in those conversations of why you want it. Younger kids are tougher. Peers don't matter yet. Oh, they're going to, and it's going to break your heart. But they don't matter yet, right? And so, you have to incentivize some things. But don't make the incentives giant where they can't achieve them, right? So, and make them simple. You don't have to spend a million dollars on these things. You can just say, dude, spend the night, one night in your room, get a lollipop. Nailed it, right? Make it simple, concise, easy. Figure out for kids what their currency is. So, and then um, connect to success. My little guy that's afraid to sleep in his room, right? So he has the homework of saying why he's afraid or why he wants to stay in the room. But he's also going to we're going to rebuild. This last time we talked about all the things that he had done this summer that was really, really brave. So we're building back bridges of connection to let them know they were successful. So I said to him, um, let's write down the three things on your bravery list. And we wrote those three things down. Urban air. Went down the water slide. Rode a bike across an intersection that was really scary, but I did it. So, dude, you're brave. So we're rebuilding connections. So we're going to figure out our goal. And then we're going to go ahead and engage in that conversation. Um, this is probably the part of the conversation that I think potentially has the most power for kids and for us, too. Like I said early on, like, I'm nervous to present, but it's worth it to me. It's a goal that I have to get this information out so parents can benefit from it because I'm passionate about it. And I've done it enough times so I can remind myself I've done this before. It doesn't have to control my life. I've done okay at it, right? So um, bridging back to your success. For our teachers in the classroom, 
having your kids write down something at the beginning of the year that made them really, really nervous, and then go back and at the end of the year and say, so at the beginning of the year, write down something that's really, really nervous, right? Like work with them on this as teachers. Touch base with them, whatever it is, going down the slide, or maybe ordering lunch in the cafeteria because interacting with adults can be scary, whatever it is. And touch base with them through the year. And then remind them of the goals that they have, right? Talk through that. And then at the end of the year, have them write about what they learned as they went through it. It's extremely powerful. And then I love um, building a, a book of proof. This is something that I actually do in my life as well. Writing down the things that I have accomplished or that the Lord has given to me as a gift. Write a book of proof. Where can I see the things that I have succeeded in? And how did I succeed in them? Um, the book of proof. We can think in our story that there's no proof along the way that we've succeeded in big things because we, right, we can globalize the things. We can focus on the things that we weren't successful in. But the truth is we have a book of proof every day of the ways that God meets us where we are. And then finally, take action on your plan. Go out there and engage it. Um, like I said, this resiliency conversation that was happening pre-pandemic is still happening post-pandemic. But if we engage in these conversations in intentional ways, we can go out and we can fight anxiety. I want people to know it does not have to rule your life. For so long, anxiety told me what to do. And you know what? It was a lie. It was a lie. The Lord is real. He is true. And I can do things that I never thought I could do before. Um, and to empower kids, especially right now, is powerful. But you have to let them go out and do the hard things. You're going to watch them fail, and it's going to break your heart. I promise you, it's going to break your heart. But there is nothing cooler, nothing cooler than having your kid step into the car and say, I did it today. I did it today. There's a saying that says, our children are constant reflections. Or they're looking to us as the adults in their lives, teachers, parents, leaders, to see if they can do the thing. And if we're constantly telling them that they can't because we remove them from it and let them not experience it, then they're going to think they really can't. But the truth is they can, and they need to know from us that they can. So in closing, you guys, today, um, God placed on my heart as I was preparing for this conversation um, in a really powerful, powerful way that um, we also need to commit our children to the Lord. And in John 16, God took me to John 16. Um, here he's talking about, it's, it's super funny. I had never really like delved into the, into the scripture this way. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he's like, I'm going away, but then I'm going to come back and then I'm going away. And the disciples are like, what's he, what's he talking about? And Jesus can see that they're like talking and he's like, y'all got a question? What's going on? Right? And so they're like, yeah, we're so confused, right? Which I can imagine. That's how I would be if I was hanging out with Jesus. Like, what's going to happen here? And so he says, like, actually, I'm going away. 
And you guys are going to grieve like you've never grieved before. But there's going to be joy on the other side of this. Because in John 16, 30, I'm sorry, 22 through 24, it says, I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, no longer, I'm sorry, excuse me, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you need, you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. And then John 16, he goes on after he's explained all these things. And this is where the power of the Lord, I think the living word's amazing, right? It was real and true 2,000 years ago, and it's real and true today. Gosh, God loves us so much. He created a Bible that's living um, and real and adapts in our lives. And he says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. As we step back and allow our kids to engage in the things that make them anxious, I think it also allows the Lord to step in as we step out. And as crazy as it sounds, I think who could love my kids more than me? God does. Like God knitted them together, knows every single cell of their body. So if I can take a step out and let my kid engage and let the Lord walk with them, it's powerful. I always say the number one most powerful thing I think that you can do for your child is when they go, to, when they're not at home, sit in their room and pray over their room, pray over their space. Ask the Lord to step in. Ask the Lord to show you where you need to let go. That's convicting, right? Ask the Lord, where does he want to take over? I'm always in awe um, that I can forget to ask the Lord to step in. Why do I forget to call on his name of Jesus? There's power and authority in the name and he gave it all on the cross. He gave it all. Not just for eternity, but for there to be hope in this world right now. For there to be hope right now. We begin living eternity in this moment right now when we take a hold of all that hope and all that joy that Jesus promised on the cross. And there wasn't power in the death. There's power in the resurrection. Lord God. Help me remember to take hold of that in this parenting role that I have. And then finally, I think probably the greatest quote ever, remind your kids daily. You're the only you this world will know. And something about your life is meant to make something about God known in a way no one else can. Parenting's gonna have bumps in the roads. When I first started parenting, I thought the goal was to have a perfect kid. And then I realized, well, that's not going to work, right? Um, I was actually creating a really stressed out kid. And so now my goal is, I don't expect perfection, but I celebrate when my kid messes up and it's 11 or 12 or 1 o'clock at night and they're at my bedside. And they're saying, dude, I messed up and it's big, right? Right? 
that is the celebration to me in parenting today. Not a perfect kid. So, um, I think the next thing that we have, let me share some resources, because this content, some of it's my own, but often it's, it's created with different things in, in place. And so I shared the book um, from Wilson and Lyons and then Raising Worry-Free Girls by Sissy Goff. That book actually is great content for boys as well. Um, and so it's not just girls. It talks about girls. The Whole Brain Child, if you haven't read that, there's a workbook that goes with it. It's excellent. And then Are My Kids on Track, which they gave away today. And I think y'all are going to learn some more about plans for that. And then stressing your children. And then Brene Brown, if y'all are familiar with Brene Brown, she doesn't come with a Christian perspective, but the gift of imperfect parenting really has some solid content. It's not Christian, but it's solid. So um, raising worry, I'm sorry, anxious kids, anxious parents is also not faith-based, but it has solid content. 